0: Go Weekly. Come get With five
1: round boats and five-legged goats. Communicore Weekly. You might catch a freaking You waited all week. I'm sure you already know this. The greatest
2: online show.
1: Hello and welcome to Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. And guess what?
0: We have our winner for the contest, We're, you know, for the free books that Bob Gers Design Just for Fun and Rolly Crump's It's Kind of a Cute Story. Was it me? It, it was not you, unfortunately. Uh-huh. You also already own both books, sometimes multiple copies of them. So oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Sorry. And the winner is going to be announced at the end of the show, so hang on to your hats.
1: It's time for Disney
2: Hits!
0: Story. So, for this week's history segment, we're going to talk about the Viewliner. And since George and I are not experts on this subject, we thought we would go directly to the source about it and bring on a special guest. So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr. Bob Gurr to the show. Bob, how are you? Merry
2: Christmas, all! <laughs> <laughs> me how i am you're trying to ask an 81 year old how life is well when you're in a rocking chair in california and it's not as cold as where you are and i got a martini in front of the fireplace it couldn't be better
0: <laughs> you're doing better than we are <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about the viewliner a little bit how did the uh, how did the idea for the viewliner come about
2: walt well, had long-term plans to to do something in the northeast side of the uh, park because, uh, you know, Disney Island got almost finished, you know, by uh, 55 and going into 56. Uh, it was obvious that um, the whole northeast corner, which had a circus in it and I had temporary little uh, small Ethiopia ride, had the uh, Phantom Boat ride, which wasn't any good, so they had a lake. And, um, and and just an octopia with uh, prayers to make the, the weeds grow higher so it looked like something was there. The long-term plan for the 1959 project meant that uh, we're still going to have a lot of barren ground until we do something. So the thought was, let's let's do something over in that corner, because it's pretty bleak. And uh, Walt immediately thought of uh, Railroad, because it, to his mind, as, as I understand from Roger Brogy and others, well, laying a railroad is pretty cheap because all you need is a truckload of ballast to get some rail, and you bring in a bunch of ties and you bring the spikes in. And there was a guy by the name of Tony who was a, like a, um, a gang boss for laying railroads. And all you had to do is kind of stake out where you wanted it, and all of a sudden, you know, within a couple of weeks, you got a railroad. Because there, there's not much to it. You're not pouring concrete, not doing stuff like that. But, well, you know, we bought a couple of bridges, have to build a couple of stations. So that part was extremely easy as to, uh, well, we'll put something in the land so it looks like, uh, you know, there's, there's something out there and, of course, it'd be an attraction. And it would, you know, you could ride from one place to another, theoretically, like you could drive all the way to fantasy land from Tomorrowland and vice versa. <laughs> but you had to kind of drive around, go over trestles and look at lakes and all that sort of stuff. So, oh, you now need a train. Well, uh, that's where uh, uh, Walton Roger came to me and said, okay, we're going to do a 24-inch gauge. We want to do a train. Now, uh, what would you do? And I immediately thought of the um, General Motors train of tomorrow, which was a uh, development by um, General Motors. And uh, at the time, it, the styling part was designed by um, a guy I later knew called Chuck Jordan, who was a car designer at that GM. And I thought that was a slickest-looking train. You know, locomotives, they're just great big piles of technical equipment. They're not really pretty, except a couple of them in the 30s were. So uh, I thought, oh, that would be really, really cool because uh, it looks like a car more than a train. And, of course, I'm a car guy. And um, some of the designs at that time, you know, they have wraparound windshields, uh, you know, really futuristic. Futuristic, looking at the time, but pretty corny uh, now, you know, looking back at it. (laughs) So, very quickly, I made up a sketch of, uh, styling-wise, what this thing could look like, and then gave some thought to, uh, how would we build a body, and, of course, uh, I was kind of one of my favorite train layouts was called the Calgo, which was a train in Spain that, um... Each car kind of uh, rested on, the, you know, part of the other, and they would rest on a common truck between the two uh, cars. Uh, it was kind of a simplified uh, arrangement for a railroad car, but you could do that or you were going to have a train that's always coupled together rather than cars that have to have couplers, so you have to have a truck on either end. So that meant there's a heck of a lot of parts if you uh, arrange a train in that kind of a manner. Then the next step was, uh, okay, how do I make the front end of this train uh, uh, look good, like the GM Aero train? And I thought, you know, the General Motors uh, A-body that came out in 1955 for the Chevy, Pontiac, and small Olds and small Buick has a wraparound windshield, looks just about like the GM Aero train. Duh, Chuck Jordan <laughs> is a car designer in <laughs> General Motors. <so. laughs> oh, this is so logical. So I figured out... Um, of the GMA bodies, uh, the uh, Old, Oldsmobile would be the best because it had a symmetrical instrument panel. Uh, in other words, the uh, die castings for the instrument on the left side of the car and the die castings for the, uh, uh, the part over the glove box on the right side was separated by a, um, uh, a radio grille that was about a 14 and an eighth inch uh, wide piece. And I thought, oh, you know, I could slice that Oldsmobile down the middle, take out that in- uh, inches, and then swap the two die-cast panels because it would still fit the instrument panel exactly the same way. Because the reason for that, trains are always a right-hand drive. They're never a left-hand drive. Um, you know, it, it's some kind of a tradition. So, okay, that would solve the overall styling of the interior and how I could do the windshield. And uh, the next step was, um, okay, now i got to figure out a chassis. Now i got to figure out a powertrain. And then, of course, from the windshield going forward, uh, that's just going to be some sheet metal and we'll get some guy to uh, bang out the sheet metal according to the surface development drawing that I would make so now back to the shafty. Um I sort of figured that you kind of have to have all-wheel drive when you've got a fairly lightweight uh, locomotive mm-hmm. so I figured out well okay we're going to have uh, eight-wheel drive well that means you got the front truck, the rear truck and then each truck has the front axle and the back axle and then I figured out that Hey, we could take um, an axle from a uh, Mercury, uh, from a uh, uh, 48 uh, Mercury, and chop the um, uh, the tread down so that it's uh, very narrow. And we still got the brakes, we got the uh, the gears, we got the opinion mount, and we got U joints. And so that way, we got a powered truck in the front, powered truck in the back. And then I would use a Jeep, um, uh, a CJ uh, Jeep uh, transfer case. It's called a drop case. And that way I could have a U-joint going to the front truck, U-joint going to the rear truck, and then I could put a belt drive on the um, outside of the—visualize uh, the truck. It's got one axle powered and one axle is a dead axle, but I can connect belts on the outside. And I'll put this little stylistic cover on the thing. Now we got all-wheel drive. Um, so you way, basically you, transfer-
0: you Frankenstein all these cars together, essentially.
2: Oh yeah. Well, yeah, what well, we, well, you could call it, a Frankenstein, but you got to stop and think. Any kind of a vehicle system that you figure out is a combination of well-known parts that you can already buy and you don't want to and you certainly don't want to invent basic stuff. You want to scrounge up logical components that you can marry together with store-bought parts. Uh, and and put it all together and try not to be a boy inventor on this thing. But anyway, I could have a little short drive shaft, and that way I could hook it up to the back of a Powerglide transmission uh, from Chevy and then use the little uh, Chevy small block uh, V8, which I kind of like, because it was kind of a cool engine. And um, Yeah, so, I, you know, well, I went up to the local Chevy dealer in Burbank, Community Chevrolet. And I would befriend the guys at the parts counter enough that uh, they know that I'm not just going to go buy parts for a Chevy. I'm going to buy parts for a locomotive at uh, Disney. And the minute you say Disney, they say, oh, what do you need? And I said, well, well, can you let me go in the parts room? I'll wander around. I'll I'll tell you what I want to buy. And then, oh, by the way, I want to buy a a small block crate engine and, and a power glide to go with it. And then some other accessories I'll figure out. And, uh, you know, so we just give them a purchase order, and boom, I got an engine delivered to the Disney uh, machine shop. So now i got to design a frame that puts all this stuff together. Since uh, You figure out the powertrain first. And uh, so that meant I got a steel frame, uh, which the, the front part has to be kind of low, because I'm going to stick this Oldsmobile body on the front. And then we put the uh, uh, the rest of the powertrain and hook up everything else and, you know, put the sheet metal on the side and the hood that raises up. So I go to the junkyard, and lo and behold, there's a 54 uh, a Olds that uh, that got wrecked. And, you uh, know, it was a fatal accident, but it didn't damage the instrument panel, and I don't need the bent steering wheel and um, certainly don't need the front of the car. So uh, I asked the guy, I just said, well, let me, let me know if you get another one, because I, I need two of them. You know, and about two weeks later, they said, oh, we got another one. We got another 54. So, um, uh, not a 54, a 50, 56. Um, so that way, now we have the bodies. Now, the reason for that is uh, windshields and doors and door frames are the most complicated part of vehicles, and you really don't want to build them from scratch. So using junkyard parts saves a ton of time and money now all i got to do is uh, build a, a body from the door's back that has this little uh, hood that kind of drops down a little bit, and then that blends into the styling of the, uh, of the, uh, uh, the truck cars behind it. Then we come to the front end. Okay, well, since I'm a race car guy, and I know a guy that builds uh, Indianapolis car bodies, and I know how they do that because there was a, a metal shipping place down on Hooper Avenue in, um, in, down in L.A., called California Metal Shaping, and what you do, you make your drawing, and then you make some, you get the wood shop to make um, some wooden um, plywood templates, and you kind of make like a little uh, a form called the buck, and you take that down there, and then uh, California Metal Shaping will shape the basic steel parts, um, and then give it to uh, the kind that's going to do the, the body itself, Guy guy called Mike Scott, who was doing the... Um, the 1957 um, Indianapolis car body, uh, so we kind of ran out of time. He, he had to get the body from the IndyCar done first before he could do the, the front end for the two Oldsmobiles, but we, we got him in time. <laughs> meantime, in, meantime, in the machine shop in Burbank, we're building a chassis, and we're hooking up the, uh, the, the small-block Chevy and the Powerglide and the Jeep uh, drop case and the Mercury axles. You know, know, we had a machine shop. Those guys could build anything. All you do is draw as much as you could, and then you arm wave the rest of it on the shop floor. And the whole darn thing came together, and then we put it on trucks, sent it to Disneyland, and then they uh, painted it down there at night. So that's all it takes to build a railroad.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You mean that's all it takes? I can build one myself now?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Remember, none of the guys in the studio had ever built a railroad Modern railroad, hmm. um, but they had built uh, the first omnibus right there in the, uh, in the in the shop. And you know, once you've seen a piece of sheet metal and a piece of bent tubing, and you weld it all together, and uh, pop rivet it, and then you paint it, what well, you, you know, one job—they're all jobs are all the same. And you know, it's just craftsmanship work. But of course, I have to give them the drawings,
0: <laughs> and
2: uh, <laughs> you know, and so yeah, I think from the time that drawing. Started, the first drawing, up until the time we delivered the locomotives for getting painted, was only a matter of a few months. I mean, that job just went at a blinding speed.
0: That, you know,
2: I'm know, a job, yeah, a job like that today, uh, completing the entire uh, two trains, would be about the time that it would take um, get a, a, a requisition for something approved at Disney today. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> that really feeds oh. into, you know, you guys were given an assignment and you just went and you did it. You no if, ands, uh-huh. or buts. There was no mm-hmm. red tape you had to cut through, you just got it done. I, I have to say, I'm I'm much more impressed with you giving the history of something like this as opposed to George and I talking about it. It's a lot more interesting when we hear it directly from you as opposed to us just reading about it. <laughs> He's a
1: nice he's, he's, he's a geek, but we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his feet, it's George's Book of the Week. Disneyland, the first quarter century, clocks in at 122 pages. It was released in 1979 to commemorate the first 25 years of Disneyland. Most of the books published about Disneyland before this were souvenir guidebooks, those smaller paperback ones that celebrated your day at Disneyland, basically. And there were a few larger hardback books that talked about the history and development of the park and sort of what the Disneyland experience was, but they were still more like souvenir guides. Disneyland the first quarter century was one of the first books to celebrate Disneyland and presents the larger historical effect the park had. It starts with the history of the park, with looking at Walt's vision and how Disneyland came to be. By today's standards, it's a typical history of Disneyland, but at the time, it was one of the few books that documented the park. It's also a first official history of the park. There are some concept paintings and a lot of construction photos. Uh, Some of these we've all seen, but at the time, were pretty revolutionary. They were new to people at the time, right? Of course, course, because, you know, that was 1979 before the intranet. The the second section is the meatiest part of the book. There are tons of photos in black and white and color that take us through the development of the park. Uh, Throughout the pages are anecdotes about famous visitors and the rides as they were introduced throughout the years. There are some fantastic aerial shots. Uh, Not shots of the Little little Mermaid? No, no. Shots from way up high. Oh. They flew in a helicopter or something like that. Uh, and, and, but I thought, uh, I thought she can't breathe out of out of the ocean. I thought she had to be in the water. She did. They had a big bubble over her head. Oh, okay. Okay. Awesome. It was awesome. And uh, Flounder was there, too. Uh, <laughs> on a plate? On a plate. You know <laughs> it. So, uh, but anyways, talking about the aerial shots and lots of construction photos throughout the years, uh, it takes us through the park year by year, looking at the major additions, like the Viewliner. Hey. Uh, there are some amazing shots of the park as changes were made. Uh, attractions that are long gone, attractions that have changed, or sadly may have lived for only a little while. Ugh. And it's interesting to note the number of celebrities and politicians are featured. It's almost like they were an attraction unto themselves. Like, hmm, how many times could Richard Nixon be at Disneyland?
0: Now, is Richard Nixon a E ticket
1: or a B-ticket? That's all I know. Oh, okay. Well, the the last section, called The Many Worlds of Disneyland, is a photo essay about the park from 1979. It's only about 15 pages, but there's some really beautiful shots from around the park. And these are more artsy shots and focus uh, on unique angles and more nostalgic-type photos. And they're not those crazy HDR photos either. Or the FDR photos that he has in his vault at the Hoover Building. Oh, never mind. (laughs) <laughs> yeah I know I know I know <laughs> the uh, since you know this book was published well before the internet, go figure well, the official internet and it's one of the first books about Disneyland. So at the time it was the only place to see a lot of these photographs and it's also one of the first places to showcase a lot of these pictures. And for many of us the details in the history really seem old hat but it's one of the only places that talked about Disneyland at the time. And if you were a fan of the park, you probably cherished this book and looked over it and over it and over it and over. It. Well, that's just me. So, uh, it, it's it's a great look at the park and how it grew and evolved over the 25 years. It's sort of like a celebration. And there are two versions of the blo- of the book: a blue one with the castle and the Matterhorn on the front, and a red one with a larger shot of the castle. So you have to buy both. That's pretty important. Uh, this book is really for collectors and historians. It's got It's an important milestone of the park and published works on it. And for Disneyland fans, it'll bring back a lot of treasured memories as well. And it's called Disneyland, the First Quarter Century. Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged goat.
0: So in the original version of Test Track, when you're driving through the tunnel and the truck almost hits you, there's a guy driving the truck, and that guy was FDR. Just like George mentioned FDR before, however, nowadays, the truck on, on Test Track 2.0, the truck is all blacked out so you can't see who's, uh, who's driving it. However, we had a little friend who got stuck on that part, and they were able to see inside the truck and see who was driving it. It is now one of the original crash test dummies that were in the original test track attraction. So that's a mm-hmm. nice little homage mm-hmm. to the little one.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What? Once there was this go <coughs> Oh what? wow. What is going on over there? I thought we were talking
1: about the crash test dummies.
0: Oh. Oh, I get it now. Oh,
1: sorry.
0: What what did I tell you about singing on the show, too? Um, No, I'm sorry. Bye. I'll I'll leave now. Okay. Bye. Well, the contest we've been running for the, the last two weeks is now over, uh... But thank you, everyone, who has entered and uh, helped to donate to the Hurricane Sandy Relief Fund that we had set up. Um, Again, the prizes were fantastic. We have a hardcover copy of Bob Gurr's Design, Just for Fun, and also a hardcover copy of Rolly Crump's It's Kind of a Cute Story. Both fantastic books, but uh, we did pick a winner, and to announce the winner, we have Bob Gurr. Bob, who won this contest?
2: The envelope, please, which is in California, not in North Carolina. I have to find it here in the records here someplace. <laughs> See, this is all very secret stuff. There's the water House, but there's uh, a greening House here that I have to, to find. <laughs> it. I'm, I'm tearing. I'm looking. I'm tearing. Okay, the envelope, I rip, Oh, my gosh. I got the envelope open. The winner is. ta da Tony Capo is the winner.
1: Hooray. <laughs> awesome. I was on pins and needles. Wow. <laughs> so
0: <laughs> congratulations, Tony. Thank you, everyone, for playing. And thank you, Tony, for entering. And uh, we'll be in touch and sending you your books.
1: Well, thanks so much for paying attention to us.
0: Yeah, leave us a comment or rate us on iTunes. And you can always email us at communicorweekly at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook at Facebook.com
1: slash Weekly. And decide to follow us on Twitter at your own risk. I'm at Imagineerding, and he's at Jeff Heimbuck. And I'm George. And I'm Jeff. Thanks so much for
0: watching. We'll see you next time on Communicore Weekly. The greatest online show.
1: Mommy blogger.